Good morning and good afternoon to all of you. Uh, on behalf of uh, MPI Europe and MPI, we would like to warmly welcome you to this webinar, um, opening more avenues for protection for refugees. Before uh, we start, I would like to start with some um, uh, uh, household uh, rules and, and suggestions. So it's important that before we um, zoom in into the content of today's session that we also flag to you should you have any problems where to turn to. So if you do have a problem accessing the webinar at some point, please do contact us at events at migrationpolicy.org or call us on the number that you can see uh, on the screen. Today, it's important to flag that there is no voice question and answer session. So if you want to ask a question to one of our panelists, we uh, ask you kindly to reach out to us uh, via the Q&A chat function or the chat function throughout uh, the webinar. Um, you can also write us at events at migrationpolicy.org or tweet at uh, migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. Um, later today, you can find the audio uh, on our website at migrationpolicy.org slash events. And this webinar uh, marks um, something very excited, uh, a report that we've been working on for the last year. Uh, it's called Refugee Resettlement and Complementary Pathways, Opportunities for Growth. And you can um, see the link there as well as, as visited um, through our website. Uh, we are joined today by uh, different panelists today. Um, we, we will have the overview uh, on the slide. Um, um, these are, um, and first of all, we'll turn to, to Nathan Benton, who's at the, the Refugee Hub at University of Ottawa for some um, opening remarks. Um, and then later on, I'll uh, introduce also the other panelists. We have Susan Frasker from MPI, who will give you an overview of the report's uh, main findings recommendations. Uh, before we then uh, turn to our distinguished panelists uh, later on. Um, before we start, I wanted to, to flag that we're so excited that we can um, present this report to you. Um, together with the Refugee Hub, we've been working hard over the past year, talking to a range of actors working in this field, exploring um, how UNHCR, national governments, international organizations, uh, local actors, also NGOs and other partners can help to grow uh, resettlement and other pathways to uh, protection. Um, we talked to more than 100 uh, different people and did a lot of research and we're so uh, excited to be able to, to share that with you uh, today. Um, and this comes at a really important time uh, with the crisis in Afghanistan. There's of course uh, an increased call across the globe to, for more investment in resettlement and other pathways. So this is also a very timely event to be having this discussion. We're very excited to do that with all of you. Uh, but without further ado, let me uh, introduce to you uh, our, our next speaker, Nathan Benson. Uh, together with him and his team, we've been um, doing this work and it's been a wonderful collaboration. Nathan Benson, I'll, I'll hand over to you. Um, um, hope Wonderful. Thanks so much, Hannah. It's a real pleasure to be with you uh, this morning. Um, and it's been a real pleasure uh, to work on this project together with MPI uh, Europe and the UNHCR team. So I want to thank you for the opportunity to, to do that and for the great collaboration that we've enjoyed over the past uh, year or so. 
And also just to thank and acknowledge all those who gave their time for interviews and, and other inputs throughout the project. The release of the report today for me feels really timely in the sense that it feels like it's never been more urgent to increase avenues to protection for refugees. As we know, um, resettlement needs have continued to grow year over year. And at the same time, uh, the COVID pandemic has created circumstances that have been just incredibly challenging for resettlement and complementary pathways over the past 18 months or so. And so it feels like it's gonna be really important uh, for everyone to redouble our, our efforts in the coming months and years to, to increase uh, avenues to protection. And hopefully the report can provide part of a, a blueprint for doing that. Um, I won't go into the analysis and, and recommendations because of course, Susan is gonna do that um, momentarily and uh, there, is, there could be no one more qualified uh, to do so than, than Susan, uh, who's been such a huge part of, of this project. Um, but perhaps I would just share one high level observation that for me really emerges from the analysis, which is that the opportunities and challenges relating to resettlement and complementary pathways are quite distinct given where we're at in their uh, respective trajectories of, of development. For complementary pathways, I think a key challenge is to translate innovation into scale. We've seen many new initiatives over the past five or six years, which is really encouraging uh, to see. I think the challenge will be, as, as is illustrated in the report, um, to grow those initiatives to scale and to replicate them by addressing some of the barriers and challenges that, that have been identified. For resettlement, where the models and approaches are, are in many cases more familiar and established, it seems to me that gains are more likely to come from efforts to increase public support and political commitment and to improve operations to make them more efficient and effective. I won't go further into the findings and analysis than, than that, but I wanna just take a, a moment before passing it back to, to Hannah to recognize some other members of the Refugee Hub team who have been working on this project, especially Eliza Bateman, our senior research analyst, who has led and managed much of our research contributions to this project, as well as other Refugee Hub colleagues who have contributed their expertise, including Anya Quadrans, Julio de Blasi, and Jennifer Bond. There are a number of supporting researchers as well whose work has informed the, the report and and those folks are acknowledged at the front end of the report. And I really wanna thank uh, the entire team for, for those um, really amazing efforts. Uh, with that, Hannah, I'll pass it back to you. And thanks again for the opportunity to be with you. Thank you very much, Nathan, for those kind words and uh, interesting remarks. I would like to now hand over to uh, our colleague, Susan Fratzke, who's a senior policy analyst uh, and an expert, key expert in this field. She will be presenting uh, some of the key findings of the report and maybe very important for all of you, some of the recommendations that the report puts forward. Thank you, Susan. 
Thanks so much, Hannah. Uh, and I just want to um, echo what Hannah said and say what a pleasure it was to work with Nathan and his colleagues at the Refugee Hub on this report. Uh, they were truly indispensable and it was really um, a, a real collaboration. So thanks so much to Nathan for joining and to all of the, the colleagues that he mentioned as well. Uh, in my comments today, I'll provide a brief overview, a very brief overview of, of the study design and then preview the findings of the report, which as Hannah mentioned, are, is now available on the MPI website and we invite everyone to um, go to the website and to check out the full report. Um, I wanted to start by setting out very quickly what we aimed to accomplish with this study. Um, our primary goal was to contribute to the strategic direction of UNHCR's work on resettlement and complementary pathways and also to provide actionable recommendations to UNHCR and to other actors um, in this field about how to support resettlements and complementary pathways um, and enable them to grow over the coming years. And um, David Manicom, um, who will speak to us later, can say a bit more about UNHCR's work specifically um, on these areas. And and uh, how the, the findings will be taken forward. Um, but as Hannah said, we were really delighted to have the opportunity to do this research and felt it was really um, a, a timely uh, moment to be undertaking it both with the uh, global compact on refugees um, in the, the process now of, of being implemented, uh, as well as the three-year strategy on growing resettlement and complementary pathways. And we're happy to be able to contribute to, to those. Um, but in addition to those international commitments, uh, we have, as Hannah said, really seen, I think, um, that this is a moment of change in resettlements and complementary pathways um, spaces. There are new countries that are taking on leadership roles and becoming significant players and really a lot of growing energy and excitement around complementary pathways in particular um, that has enabled the field to expand and encompass new actors. So we felt it was a, a timely moment to document the lessons that have been learned in taking these new ideas and initiatives forward and hopefully um, contribute to the, the further growth of the field. With the research specifically, um, we aimed to uh, accomplish two things. First, map the opportunities to grow resettlements and complementary pathways that exist uh, globally. And second, uh, in the process of doing that, also document promising practices and lessons learned on how to actually set up and scale up resettlements and complementary pathways. So both looking for opportunities for growth and uh, learning um, a bit from, from previous experience as well. And while there are really, uh, truly many exciting things um, happening in the resettlement and complementary pathway space at the moment that we could have documented in the report and, and a lot of opportunities as well, uh, we did need to set some parameters on our research to make it manageable and targeted. Um, first, we limited the scope to looking at UNHCR referred resettlement. Um, so that excludes things like um, privately referred um, sponsorship programs. Uh, Plus, we looked at two specific complementary pathways, third country education, so initiatives that allow refugee students to study in a third country with a path to legal status in that country or another country after graduation and third country employment pathways. So programs that allow refugees to enter a country to uh, take up work on a, a, a visa or other type of authorization. Uh, we unfortunately were not able to look at humanitarian visas or family reunification pathways within the scope of this study. 
Geographically, we uh, looked in the mapping at uh, four different regions, Asia and the Pacific, Europe, North and South America, uh, as countries of resettlement or destination. So looked at the role that countries in these areas could play in resettlements and complementary pathways. The work was done over three phases. The first phase was the global mapping phase, which included a broad scan of all four regions to identify possible avenues for growth and potential challenges to growth, as well as good practices. We then uh, did more in-depth case studies in five countries to look at more, um, more specifically possibilities for growth in those five countries. Uh, here we looked at Finland, France, Germany, Japan, and the United States. And I'm happy to um, speak in more detail in the Q&A about how we arrived at the selection of those countries, but it was based on an assessment of the opportunities and scale of growth that was conducted in the global mapping phase, as well as a desire to try to add to the knowledge that exists in this field. So there's there some countries that um, we're aware have really um, exciting programs uh, that have emerged over the last few years, but those were well known already to the UNHCR and other partners. And so we wanted to focus on some of the um, uh, less well known opportunities. Uh, for most of these countries, we looked at resettlement and focused on one complementary pathway. Uh, we looked at employment specifically in Finland and then looked at um, education in the other four countries. The third and final phase of the project was a comparative analysis in preparing the final report. So we synthesized the results of the global mapping and case studies and uh, aimed to present specific opportunities and good practices that were identified in the research and opportunities and recommendations for growth. Uh, the data that the research is based on uh, includes 120, more than 120 interviews with experts, UNHCR country staff, government officials, civil society organizations, uh, and other partners, including universities and businesses. It also includes a legal analysis that was led by the Refugee Hub and a desk review of internal documents related to different programs. Um, we have developed um, case studies of the five countries that I mentioned, which have been um, shared internally with different partners and uh, published the final report, which was released today, uh, as I said, on our website. Unfortunately, we don't have time today to present all of the results of all of the case studies, though um, they're fascinating, although I'm a bit biased, um, and we'd love to be able to. Uh, so instead, we'll focus on the cross-cutting findings of the final report, but I'll be very happy to answer any questions on the case studies in the Q&A as anyone uh, may have them. So I'd like to turn first to the uh, cross-cutting findings on resettlement, because resettlement is, of course, a core pillar of the ecosystem of third country solutions for refugees. Uh, and we saw, I think, in the research broadly that there's a lot of energy around resettlement in many of the countries that we studied. Um, but as Nathan said, the challenge is really finding ways to direct this energy and ensure that it can really be capitalized on by resettlement programs, both um, in terms of materializing um, that energy into political will and also ensuring that programs have the operational um, conditions to uh, to actually deliver these these commitments and ambitions and there are a number of um, barriers or challenges um, as well as opportunities for overcoming those barriers that were documented in the research 
The first, of course, is, as we all know, is that um, your resettlement requires a political commitment and governments before making uh, you know, these large commitments want to be confident that the public is behind them um, in expanding a program. In many of the countries that we reviewed, um, governments expressed either uncertainty or fear around how publics would perceive resettlement uh, and perceive uh, increases in resettlement quotas or worries about challenges from political groups that had expressed opposition to resettlement or immigration more broadly. So the broader polarization around immigration has of course touched the resettlement space and, and uh, made it difficult sometimes for governments to engage in ambitious commitments. Um, which is holding back further investments in resettlement. But we also saw that a really nuanced understanding of how resettlement and refugees are viewed and what fears publics might have and narratives that they respond to is actually lacking in a lot of the countries. Um, where there is public opinion research, it's not always targeted enough to be useful or it isn't well designed. And I know this sounds like a very academic point, particularly coming from a researcher, but it has real implications for policy. So just to share uh, one example, in one of the countries we looked at, there was a survey that was widely cited by the individuals we spoke to as proof that the public was fearful of refugees and the reason for not um, further growing the resettlement program. But when we actually looked at the survey as part of the desk research, we saw that the, the questions with regard to refugees were actually part of a larger public opinion survey that covered a wide range of topics. There were only uh, maybe th three or four questions specifically on refugees, several of which touched on security issues specifically. And those questions about refugees and whether or not the respondents viewed them as security risks actually came after a whole series of questions about crime and public security, um, which is actually very problematic from a, um, public opinion perspective, because when you ask people um, questions uh, after a, a long series of, of questions on a different topic, they're primed to think about whatever you're asking in a different light. So it's very possible that people, uh, after having thought a lot about crime, were then primed to think about crime when they were talking about refugees. Um, Yet the, the survey and the findings have really informed how officials have thought about opportunities and, and public responses for resettlement, despite the fact that there is um, public mobilization in other areas around growing resettlement. So there's a really a need to improve understanding of public views of resettlement in a really detailed and, and nuanced and high quality way and how to shape them. Um, and, and I should say this is particularly a need outside of countries such as the US and Canada where a lot of research already exists uh, because data like this actually do really drive policy decisions and influence how governments and policymakers perceive opportunities. Second, uh, as I said, you, despite these concerns on the parts of officials, we do actually see some very active and vocal constituencies in support of the growth of resettlement in several countries. Um, the challenge has been that there aren't always pathways for these groups to really make their voices heard or to influence um, resettlement decisions. And I think there are a couple of examples that um, illustrate this point. Uh, Finland, for example, for the last several years, um, cities and towns have offered to take in greater numbers of refugees than the national government has decided to admit through the, the national quota. Um, and because the quota is set at the national level through a political process, um, the places that cities and regions have offered and made available to refugees that the local level haven't always been able to be filled. So there's a capacity um, and public interest that isn't always um, capitalized on. Uh, a contrasting example comes from Germany where 
There's also been um, very active local support for resettlement and state level governments have actually moved forward with creating their own resettlement programs over and above what the national government is doing. Um, and this is possible because the law actually allows state governments the authority to do this and to create these sorts of programs. Uh, across the mapping and case study countries, we saw that there are a lot of examples of local business, student groups, and others who are very anxious to find ways to support resettlement. Um, and I think the, the two lessons from uh, the Finnish and German examples, as well as other examples we reviewed, um, really point to a couple of ways um, how to really catalyze on and channel the support for resettlement. Um, first is the importance of really involving local communities in the resettlement process. So the local support that we've seen from Finland is due um, not just to, to sort of inherent interest on the part of local governments, but also due to really hard work on the part of local economic development officials who worked closely with local government to actually explain the resettlement program and engage their support. So it really demonstrates, I think, how critical it is to treat local government and local communities as partners in resettlement programs um, to engage and ensure their support. Uh, second is the importance of actually having channels for local government and community groups and businesses to engage directly in resettlement and provide capacity to resettlement programs. Um, most countries don't have models like Germany where they can simply um, start or launch their own programs, but there are other ways to engage these groups through things like community sponsorship or other models for bringing them into the resettlement process. One um, challenge to growing resettlement, of course, is encouraging governments to set ambitious quotas and capitalize on and build public support. Another is ensuring that capacity actually exists to grow and grow those programs and fulfill those quotas. And that's the second set of challenges that we really identified within the context of resettlement. Uh, although there's been a lot of energy in many places behind resettlement, resettlement efforts globally have hit a massive operational roadblock that was caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And we saw in um, speaking with different officials that uh, COVID-19 demonstrated there's a need to find ways to make programs both more flexible and able to better plan ahead and two particular um, uh, policy pieces that we saw as being uh, helpful in doing this is the use of multi-annual quotas, so quotas that allow countries to carry resettlement places over from one year to another, um, and allows also for forward planning, and also multi-annual budgets, so budgets around resettlement programs that do the same allow um, governments to plan ahead and actually plan um, uh, for resettlement commitments down the line, but then also flexibility to move things around as needed. Um, in addition, there's a need for operational models that are that are flexible and, and allow for adapting programs to different contexts. And here there's been a lot of growth um, around the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Resettlement operations in uh, many countries often involve multiple trips to a departure location to do interviews and pre-departure orientation. And this can be very difficult to do, not just during a pandemic where there are travel restrictions and restrictions on who can actually see um, each other face-to-face, you know, -face, how many people can be in a room. Um, but even in outside the pandemic, there are always situations where it's difficult to travel to a particular location or um, difficult for refugees themselves to travel. And uh, it's become uh, very clear throughout the pandemic that it's important to have other options for these situations like doing remote interviews or, or pre-departure orientation remotely. And there's been a lot of development of those technologies and expansion of their use as part of the pandemic. Um, and that's something that um, we really see as important to continue um, to facilitate going forward um, where it's useful for, for the particular context. Uh, finally, 
Uh, we also saw in all of the, the countries that we reviewed that there's a high degree of interest um, in really continuing to learn from each other, not just for new resettlement countries where um, targeted peer support and training is really uh, important to developing their programs, but also for existing resettlement countries who um, felt that they still have a lot to learn from their peers who are developing new and innovative practices that could be useful to them. Um, so there's a need for peer support initiatives in the area of um, resettlement to also include um, those existing resettlement countries so they can continue to learn and, and grow their programs. Uh, there's also a need for opportunities um, to exchange uh, operational information and further coordinate resettlement operations between resettlement countries, including possibilities for things like sharing venues or staff from certain departure locations, uh, or simply um, enabling countries to know more about what um, they're doing in terms of selection missions, schedules, those sorts of things, so that countries aren't um, competing for different resources. Um, one good practice we identified in this area is the EASO, the European Asylum Support Office Resettlement Network, which connects resettlement countries across Europe so they can exchange uh, information about their programs and also um, now is developing a system for exchanging information about when selection missions and interview missions and things are scheduled. Um, and they've also developed a, uh, a process for sharing um, uh, some space and staff um, in certain departure locations as well. Uh, so as I said, there's a great deal of energy and potential around resettlement, but also a lot of work to be done to ensure that this energy can be harnessed and doesn't go to waste. And that means uh, both ensuring that there are ways for communities um, and interested constituencies to get directly involved in resettlement programs, and also making sure that programs have the right policy settings and operational know-how to make sure that quota places that they pledge can actually get used. In the area of complementary pathways, uh, I think we also observed a, a great deal of energy and enthusiasm specifically for refugees to work or study in third countries. Um, and as I said, is the case also in the resettlement space, a lot of this interest has come from non-traditional actors who are eager to be involved in supporting refugees. And complementary pathways have really provided an outlet for many of these groups and individuals to participate and become involved. Uh, but there are a number of um, barriers that we'll need to work to resolve in, in the next um, years and UNHCR and um, the three-year strategy and CRISP initiative and, and task forces have already um, been working in, in many cases to address. Uh, the first is legal frameworks. Um, legal frameworks are really the largest hurdle to starting new programs and expanding existing ones. A lot of existing initiatives have used regular student or work visas to admit refugees because these programs already exist. They're separate from humanitarian commitments and um, in some cases are uncapped or subject to higher caps than resettlement is. They provide an, an opportunity for uh, complementary pathways programs to be additional to uh, humanitarian commitments. But these student and work visas often require things like valid passports, transcripts from previous study, um, language tasks, uh, and other um, types of documentation, um, as well as restrictions on things like the ability to work or bring in family. Um, the US, for example, has particularly high barriers and requires students to prove that they don't intend to stay in the country, um, which can be very difficult for refugees. 
Um, it may be possible, as we saw in many of the countries reviewed, that uh, these requirements can be waived, um, but this often requires extensive individual facilitation uh, and can be very resource intensive for programs. So there's a need to really figure out how to, uh, in each context, um, lower these barriers in ways that don't require extensive individual facilitation. Um, second, while there's a lot of energy and interest around complementary pathways among certain groups, we also saw that there's limited knowledge and familiarity among others. Um, and some of the interviewees we spoke with actually expressed skepticism that refugees had the qualifications for work and study pathways. So there's a continued need to raise awareness around what complementary pathways are and the skills that refugees have. A third challenge. Um, that we saw comes from contexts where complementary pathways are already growing, um, where different actors have become engaged in the field and um, developed sort of different programs and initiatives. And while that diversity is helpful and valuable, uh, there's also a need to create venues for coordinating and sharing those practices um, within each country. Finally, um, two last barriers to, to highlight. Uh, one is funding. Uh, complementary pathways programs are operating as you know private initiatives in most cases, and finding sustainable sources of funding is really critical. Um, and sharing best practices on those will be um, important for growing pathways going forward. Um, there's also a need to be able to identify and connect with refugees who actually qualify for these opportunities and that kind of data is not always captured uh, in humanitarian databases, but it may be in other uh, other areas like um, programs working on livelihoods um, development activities, and there's a need to connect um, and try to document where that information is being held, as well as figure out ways to plug um, skills gaps for those who are nearly ready to go, like language top up um, to improve language skills or, or refresh credentials. Um, the report itself goes into much greater detail on both the findings of the case studies and the overarching recommendations. Um, and as I said, we invite you to read the full thing on MPI's website, but I'm happy to discuss further in Q&A. So thanks very much, and I'll pass it back over to Hannah. Thank you very much, Susan, for the outline. And yes, we do recommend that you have a closer look because there's lots of concrete ideas and recommendation examples of how to uh, address some of the growth opportunities that our team has identified. Um, we would now like to turn to our panelists who will be discussing the report findings with you. Um, first of all, we're delighted to have Etienne Sirebungo with us. Um, he's a, a, a refugee, a person who's been recently resettled to a Nordic country. And he has kindly agreed to speak to us uh, to outline some of the value that he has identified based on his experience of uh, resettlement complementary pathways. We've had a couple of issues with regard to uh, the technicality. So do bear with us for a little moment as we try and test uh, to see, um, yeah, if we can speak to Etienne. Etienne, fingers crossed, over to you. Uh, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. I think you can hear me now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Hello, everyone, ladies and gentlemen. I have been asked to speak about the value of resettlement and resettlement complementary pathways. I summarized my speech in a written statement so that I don't miss my main point. Yeah, as you said, my name is Etienne Serubungo. I'm a refugee from the Democratic Republic of Congo. I was resettled from Kenya 
to another country. Next. Thank you so much. So resettlement is a life-saving tool for refugees. In my case, I was, I was a refugee living in Nairobi with my mother, my mother siblings and wife and children. As a result of my mother's health condition, my entire family was resettled to another country just over a week ago. So yeah, as you understand, I'm new here. Uh, in my family case, resettlement was a life-saving tool. Without resettlement, my mother would have died in Nairobi because the treatment was unavailable. My mother now will be able to receive the treatment she requires. Thanks to the treatment, she will be able to make a full recovery and care for my minor siblings. Next. Yeah. Interviews during the pandemic. My resettlement was an experience and maybe differently from that of other because we were resettled over a relatively short period of time because of my mother's health condition. We were also resettled during a pandemic and the new procedures were in place for interviews and cultural orientation by the resettlement countries. So some states believe that it is not possible for them to conduct resettlement interviews because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it is possible. As I said, for me, I did an embassy interview online or resettlement interview online with the uh, country and it went very smoothly and it was so good. And we did the cultural orientation online as we did for the resettlement interview. So I would like especially to thank states that conduct online resettlement interviews even during this tough moment of the COVID-19 pandemic. Next. Yeah. Uh, family reunification. I wanted to talk about the family reunification. Yeah. I've lived with my mother the entire life. We fled together from Congo, as I said, and we lived together in Kenya. We depended on each other. So I was very fortunate to have been resettled with her and my minor siblings and my family, as I said, my wife and children. I will therefore also be able to help them and support them in our new country where we are now. I know many others who are not so fortunate. I still have a brother and relatives of mine in, in, in Congo. So I would like to thank countries so who take a flexible approach to family reunification, allowing close family members like mine to be resettled together. And I hope one day we'll be reunited with my brother who we left in Congo and the other relatives. Next. Yeah, value of other pathways. In Nairobi, I was very fortunate to have 
found a job working with an NGO on child protection there in Kenya. I was therefore able to support myself and my family when many other refugees are not able to do so and forced to live in camps. I realized that not every refugee can be resettled and that is why I think it is very important that refugee that refugee with skills can obtain information about scholarship and employment opportunity in Europe and other countries such as Canada and the United States. Many refugees will never be able to return to their own homes uh, because of the war. Yeah, very few will be able to integrate fully where they are in the asylum countries. And it is important that those options be available to them and that they are able to access them. Next. Yeah, my hope of the future as uh, one who was resettled uh, last week. Uh, my aim now is to learn the language where I am now quickly and to found employment in order to support my family and contribute to the new to my new country and the community in the future or in the few weeks we will start our language classes and my children will begin school and kindergarten and i am hopefully for the future thank you so much for this little contribution about the resettlements Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Etienne. Uh, we really appreciate you making the time and going through the effort to, to join us for this conversation and doing this so short after you uh, changed the country, changed continent, and I had to deal with all the kind of technical yeah. issues that we all have to deal with day in, day out. Um, so, uh, but we're often used to. So this is really uh, very warmly appreciated. And yeah, thank you for outlining some of your experiences, but also how you look at uh, the resettlement opportunities that we're discussing today. And we may be coming back to you with some questions later on. Thank you, Etienne. We would like now to turn to uh, our other panelists as well, uh, Rebecca uh, Granata. Um, she's the Associate uh, Vice President for Global Initiatives at the Bard College. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Rebecca. We would like to explore with you, uh, based on your work with the Global Task Force on, on Education, uh, what are some of the key opportunities that you have been identifying through your work and how these match with some of the recommendations and findings that Susan's outlined that you found in our report um, and where you see uh, some of the greatest opportunities arising in the immediate and, and longer term. Thank you. Great, thank you, Hannah. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to all of you about what the Global Task Force is doing and some reflections on the report. So I'll just tell you a little bit about the task force and then launch into some wider reflections. The task force was launched by UNHCR in 2020 with a mission to support the expansion of education as a complementary pathway for refugees to third countries. It's now co-chaired by the Open Society University Network and the World University Service of Canada with UNHCR as a technical advisor. 
The membership's committed to several key objectives related to complementary education pathways, including promoting a set of globally acknowledged minimum standards, bringing together key stakeholders for advocacy related work and expanding tertiary opportunities and developing new tools and resources for stakeholders to design and implement. The report touches on a number of areas in relation to education pathways which resonate with the wider work of the global task force. Consortia composed of very different actors are key to supporting complementary education pathways, which the report hints at. In the realm of education pathways, support and participation are often siloed, with humanitarian actors working on one aspect, universities considering another, states looking at yet another. Task force membership is intentionally diverse to address this need with state actors, Portugal, Germany, and Canada, university networks such as the Open Society University Network and UNIMED, foundations such as the Japan ICU Foundation and OSF, and NGOs such as WUSC. And such a roster situates the task force as able to collaboratively address uh, both global and context-specific challenges that impede complementary pathways, from promoting the use of certain visa categories frameworks to designing preparatory programs for learners before departing their countries of first asylum. So when designing pathways, it's critical to leverage resources and strengths across multiple and diverse partners to ensure broad support and buy-in, uh, legal and logistical coordination, as well as cost efficiency. In line with the report's recommendations, the task force's mission is geared at broadening public support for refugee mobility, encouraging peer support between established actors working in the education pathways arena, and those also seeking to establish new pathways, and also creating venues for a broad range of partners to exchange practical information and to share best practices on their experience of running or setting up education pathways programs. The task force is going to be launching a global community of practice to bring together a number of actors working in very localized settings, as well as more regionally and globally, to build members' capacity to develop, implement, or expand third country education pathways through trainings and workshops, peer-to-peer exchange, to conduct research, to develop tools, to think about sustainable funding models, and also best practices. As part of this, the community of practice is going to be launching a series of five training modules, which will address some of the concerns that the report raises uh, in early October. It'll open up avenues for conversation amongst many different actors, states, universities, and others who are key to unsiloing some of this work. Also through the community of practice collaboration, the task force is aiming to address one of the priority areas named in the report, scalability, particularly when it comes to decreasing the level of staff time and commitment and resources needed to operate a program. So to make complementary education pathways work, it's critical to invest in awareness raising outside of humanitarian and government spaces, such as with universities. For example, the report points out that it's necessary to encourage higher education institutions to create the educational opportunities by sharing success stories about refugees who are well-equipped to meet the challenges of university education, but bringing in universities, as I'm sure many of us know, needs a lot more work than that. First, we need to speak a language that universities understand, which the report also references, not only humanitarian and NGO workers. Terminology such as complementary pathways doesn't really resonate with universities and kind of needs a little bit of revision when we're speaking to this audience. 
Task force efforts also bring also support bringing universities into education pathways development earlier than serving as receiving institutions, but actually participating in the conceptualization and the design of implementation of education pathways programs. University actors have a lot of potential for taking a lead. For example, higher education leadership can mobilize to advocate with state actors for expanded or new approaches to admitting refugee students and to support the expansion of refugee sponsorship. Universities can also advocate in their local context with an aim of attracting talent to the, their localities, which is an approach that would probably resonate well in the US. Universities should also be really involved in setting up the preparatory courses and training for students to successfully transition into these higher education institutions, which includes supporting the application processes, all things the report is referring to. Finally, universities in specific contexts could form consortia or expand the purview of their existing networks to expand and institutionalize pathways programs. So finally, I just wanna mention a number of contexts where there are opportunities for education pathways growth. The report says that the creation of new complementary education pathways programs seems more feasible in countries where legal frameworks are already broadly amenable. So for example, in Europe, where there are clear uh, student visa frameworks and where a government's open to, explore, to exploring sort of minor regulatory or operational changes to mitigate any remaining barriers. Expanding pathways in such contexts is a key task force initiative, and yet a number of new contexts also have ample opportunity for the establishment of pathways programs. The US is one such location since President Biden's administration is committed to increasing refugee resettlement by setting an annual global refugee admissions cap to 125,000 and pledging to make more avenues for entrance available, including through higher education visas. Additionally, and importantly, I would say that the university system within the US is experiencing a fundamental shift. Higher education institutions have augmented their social missions, increasing their commitments to diversity and equity and inclusion, as well as global civic engagement initiatives. Uh, this is happening through initiatives such as delivering learning and refugee camps, and also engaging in state and federal level advocacy for immigrant rights. So what this means is that a number of universities are increase, increasingly playing a humanitarian and development role, uh, both regionally and globally. I would also say that the Afghanistan crisis might also present an opportunity for the growth of complementary education pathways. The task force has already noted a number of countries stepping forward, uh, proclaiming to expand the possibility of existing pathway programs, such as Japan and to explore setting up new programs such as Bulgaria. So it's possible that this crisis is poised to inspire new innovative approaches to forging education pathways. So I think I'll leave it at that and look forward to the discussion and the question and answer. Thank you, Rebecca, for those. Uh, it was really interesting to zoom in on a particular pathway and, and hear your experience in this. And we, we can also chat about that further in the Q&A. Uh, section of, of the webinar. I'd like to I would turn like to David Manneken, uh, who's based at UNHCR uh, and works as a special advisor on resettlement and complementary pathways. David, we're all very curious to hear, of course, how UNHCR is thinking on uh, taking some of the, the study findings and some of the recommendations forward 
um, as part of the, the three-year strategy and the, the, the more global work that you'll be engaged in. Um, but also, um, I'm sure there's, there's uh, people listening to us today and who are more on the uh, emerging front, uh, starting new resettlement and complementary pathway programs. And we'll be also interested to hear what kind of support that UNHCR and partners will be giving in that respect. So over to you, thank you. Uh, thank you, Hannah. Can you hear me clearly? Good. It's a great pleasure to participate in this webinar on refugee resettlement and complementary pathways and opportunities for growth. Um, as you heard earlier, this research was commissioned by UNHCR under the framework of the Sustainable Resettlement Complementary Pathways Initiative, uh, or CRISP, um, a little over a year ago. And we certainly are very grateful for all of the interviewees and all the uh, the reference group participants from IOM, OECD, ICM, CSMA for their valuable insights and sound steering throughout the research. And perhaps a little special thanks from me to my colleagues, Angela Murrow and Davina Gacy Said, who devoted so much of their time and energy to helping out from the UNHCR perspective and what really has been a global a partnership study. I actually won't spend too much time, Hannah, talking about what, what UNHCR is going to do with this because. I want to keep repeating that the three-year strategy is not UNHCR strategy. It's a global strategy of all of our partners. Um, but nevertheless, a couple of quick thoughts about UNHCR activities, and then I want to turn to some broader uh, thematic uh, reflections to try to prod us toward um, really effective action in the next phase. Because after all, we're coming to the end of the three-year strategy. We're all thinking about what to come next, what kind of platform can ensure growth, uh, through the task forces and the other uh, multi-stakeholder partnerships, which have grown um, with, with um, very encouraging speed over the last couple of years. There's no comprehensive global overview of opportunities to grow resettlement and complementary pathway programs. So the system has been mostly reliant on new countries coming forward. So it's not surprising that this came out as a recommendation in the consultations for the three-year strategy and that the global mapping is referenced um, under an, as an enabling action of the strategy. So we're delighted to complete that phase, although we know there's lots more work and analysis to be done. Certainly the findings show there are many potential opportunities. They are nuanced, they are subtle, and they are evolving and will require us to keep our intelligence current. It also highlights activities that may already be ongoing that should be built uh, built on. We'll work closely with UNHCR colleagues and all partners in specific country settings. And as I want to talk about in a minute, there's a, a challenging balance to work here with regard to common principles and country-specific tactics um, to get real program growth. Most of these um, activities will require joint action to be successful. We also think the findings will be valuable in, in directing the work of the CRISP and engaging with new and emerging countries uh, going forward. Um, so as I turn to the broader reflections, I wanna, I wanna say a couple of things at the start. Um, I want to add after every paragraph I say, although I won't say it every time, you know, while ensuring quality protection, we know we, we know we mean that, whatever we're talking about, but we need to reiterate here the principle of quality protection in all of our pathways. And then secondly, the principle of, of refugee self-agency and self-respect. This is fundamentally why in a after protection is, is obtained through a movement to a third country, 
The next phase is ensuring refugee self-agency and self-respect. I think that's just so crucial. And I think that should, those should be envelopes around all of our discussion uh, in these areas. After all, the, the fundamental premise of the compact in this area is to increase the overall quantity and quality of both protection and solutions uh, VSA, VSA pathways to third, third homes. So I want to touch briefly on a couple of overarching thematic principles that occurred to me. One is, when, when you're reading the report, one is country-specific issues versus overarching principles. When I finished reading the report again uh, yesterday, I wanted to sort of say to ourselves, we need to be respectful of national cultural differences, but not dissuaded by them. Countries change, and they sometimes change much more quickly than we think. Um, I had the experience 20 years ago of promoting community sponsorship on behalf of High Commissioner Guterres in Europe. And everyone in Europe said that that couldn't be done in Europe. It was something weirdly Canadian. Now there's programs in the UK and Ireland and Germany and Spain and Belgium and so forth. C countries change and contexts change and the political and social structures sometimes evolve very, very quickly. We're so used to saying that Japan doesn't do immigration. Japan has three times as many temporary foreign workers as Canada does at any given time. Um, and we know from, from history, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary foreign worker. So there are opportunities that evolve quickly. We need to understand the local cultural and political context, but try not to say to ourselves, we have to write off that country. That country doesn't do these kinds of things. We have to continue to work uh, ferociously on ways in. Um, another theme to talk about um, across the report, I think, is the role of subnational governments. No time to go into it all here, but we've seen many, many examples in Finland, the support for resettlement in municipalities, in Germany, in Canada, in Australia, local development authorities, uh, state and provincial governments, the role that community sponsorship can play, structuring our engagement through things like EuroCities and other networks. We really need to think hard over the next few years about how to really empower the advocacy and influence of subnational governments. I think uh, it was the Economist who wrote in their anniversary issue that the future of liberal democracy is in part pushing authorities downward closer to people. I think that's something that our work over the last couple of years has reminded us all, reminded us um, very strongly. That's where the action is to some extent. And we need to find structural ways to enable those local partners to turn their enthusiasm into national influence uh, to grow big programs. So many different areas to cover. The administrative or regulatory waivers needed for education and labor pathways. Here is where there's a lot of exciting developments going on that it's now time to turn them into global knowledge sharing and get government bureaucrats realizing that other countries have figured out ways to do it, other countries a lot like them, and do mutual learning to start to turn these programs on. In a lot of these areas, there's huge enthusiasm by the business sector, by the education sector, as Rebecca knows, and frankly, to some extent, we need governments to get out of the way, and find ways to uh, be helpful, um, but get out of the way. Um, don't have time to cover all of these, but one thing that we could think about going forward is this, um, this catch-22 of public, public perception. We can't do resettlement because resettlement might, might, might make our public nervous. 
it might create a, a backlash. Uh, but the government, the public can't learn about resettlement or other pathways and how they work and learn about how refugees actually integrate into their society if you don't have programs. We have this kind of catch-22. How can we figure out structural ways to break those log jams by bringing local civic leaders together with business and education leaders um, and doing the right convenings, not to embarrass national governments, but to make it easy for them to say yes. Uh, I think there are ways to do that. Relatively small amounts of seed funding can create local integration partnership structures with, 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 with the police and the city council and education providers and the chamber of commerce, health, health officials, all in the same room, figuring out how to do it and look and, and watch national government see how that can happen how that can work um, in action. Um, I've got to wrap up given the time, but Nathan talked about translating innovation into scale. And that's one of our big challenges, isn't it? Um, look at all the things that we're starting to do to put third country solutions together, not yet knowing whether they will result in incremental or transformational growth. We've got Project Grow at UNHCR to try to leverage our national partners for for stronger integration, reception, community support type um, processes to grow resettlement. We've got networks of cities. We've got industry sectors, healthcare, construction, hospitality, transport, all with huge labor shortages right now. Education networks, employers, or unions, organized labor, an area we've barely started to, to scratch. Each of these warrant a sub-strategy. Um, Frankly, we probably need to spend a little less time and energy on more generic convenience of the already converted and building our, our access to influential decision makers um, across society and making that access to influence um, structural. It's, it's changing organizational charts, it's changing roles and responsibilities so that safe third country solutions are part of somebody's job in our organizations and in our governments um, and across the landscape. Um, I'll leave it there for now. I would just uh, want to wrap up by saying that we in UNHCR and all of our partners are, are right now thinking hard about how to make all of the rich partnerships we've built over the last few years um, results oriented and impactful in 2022 and beyond. So I hope that you will all join us in, in figuring out that, that secret recipe. There's a lot of opportunity. The political landscape is mixed, but the broad social and economic um, trends provide us with lots of opportunity across the political spectrum. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Um, yeah, I think you've uh, really inspired us with thinking through how to engage with a, a huge variety of different actors and stakeholders and really thinking through, as you say, how to work with each of those. And I already see that in the chat, this has very much resonated with some of the, uh, the audiences and really thinking through how to mobilize and do justice to uh, some of the, the strengths and opportunities that different actors have identified in this area and really take this forward. Uh, we would now like to turn to the, the Q&A uh, section of, of this um, uh, webinar. As I said in the beginning, you can uh, use the, the Q&A function or the chat function and send your question to all panelists, or you can write events at migrationpolicy.org. Um, 
David, I, I understand that you may have to leave right now. Uh, is that correct? Or can we pose a final question to you? Just check it. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll stay on for a few more minutes, Hannah. Okay, well, uh, David, then I'll, I'll briefly turn to you because you know, we know you have a hard stop uh, and we thank you for making the time to join this webinar. And there were a couple of questions in relation to uh, labor pathways. Um, two questions on the one hand uh, from Ray Kozlowski um, talking about the fact that nine out of 10 uh, refugee uh, countries that he was referring to, and there's a lot of employment in, in the agricultural sector. And so he was very curious to see on the one hand, to what extent uh, refugee destination uh, countries may be wanting to also make sure that these people can be brought in and actually can be brought in, in terms of, for example, uh, country farming and processing sectors. But the question I want to put to you is another question related to that uh, by Janet Uma from uh, Refuge Point, who said, um, are there concerns that these kind of growth in complementary pathways uh, could have two repercussions on the one hand, maybe a reduction in either uh, the volume of existing resettlement spaces or, or them uh, going down over time, and or would we see that states may prefer to use those kind of pathways to select certain refugees with particular skills or diplomas that better reflect maybe some of the labor shortages that they may have in their country. So if we can ask that maybe that last question to you and then I'll turn to Susan maybe for the first one. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's inevitably a concern. Generally speaking, you know, we tend to find that countries who are interested in being proactive and developing safe pathways for refugees through uh, labor, through and through family reunification, the, the big area, which um, we almost need another whole session on because we weren't able to cover it in this report or education pathways. We generally find that the countries that are proactive in those areas are also countries which are proactive about resettlement and want to grow resettlement. Uh, there are a, an exception or two right now. Um, and those are, those are of concern. You know, the advocacy position is very clear that these are to be you know, none of us like the term complementary pathways, but the, 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 that the numbers are complementary or additional to resettlement is, it's all of our responsibilities um, to repeat that message in all fora. And I've heard it said most passionately often by some business people who are interested in hiring refugees and do not want in any way uh, the work that they are doing to help create op employment opportunities for refugees to damage uh, resettlement programming. There's not, so there's not, there's not normally a conflict. Um, of course, some country or a country or two may decide to do it. I think we have to have confidence as the Global Compact does that in the long run, um, narratives of refugees as contributors, not only as victims, is one that refugees want to hear and want to be part of. Um, I get a little teary-eyed hearing refugees talk about the moment when people started to interview them about their skills, not about their needs. Um, they wanted to be talked to about their, what they could contribute, not just about what they needed. Um, so I am convinced that in the long, in the long run, education and labor and other pathways will be supportive of the humanitarian protection need of, of needs-based resettlement. Um, will that happen 100% of the time? I doubt it. The world doesn't work that way. I think overall it's, the, it's working in the and space, not the or space uh, that we have to do. The need is so big, we can't, we can't sit here and say, we can't try these other pathways because there's some risks involved. We're gonna do resettlement the way we've done it for the last 20 or 30 years. That's all we're gonna, that's all we're gonna try. I don't think we can do that. Thanks. 
Thank you, David, and thank you for staying on a little bit longer and we understand you mean to leave now, but thanks for joining the webinar. Uh, I'll just hand over now to Susan. Susan, if you could, uh, um, yeah, uh, give some more information in response to Ray's question, that would be great. Very happy to. Uh, so on the question with regard to agricultural employment, uh, I think it's a very good one. Um, one of the challenges that we see around uh, scaling up of refugee employment pathways is that uh, these often use existing um, employment visas. And with regard to uh, pathways such as agricultural immigration and labor pathways, uh, there's a concern that these tend to be temporary and they tend to not necessarily come with um, all of the rights that are uh, normally like to see around resettlement or humanitarian programs. Um, so I think the challenge to opening up um, uh, labor pathways to other skills is figuring out how to address those questions around the level of, of protectiveness of a particular pathway like an agricultural labor pathway when someone might be moving on um, a visa that doesn't encompass all of the, the normal rights and, and other benefits that we would normally like to see. Um, I think the answer to that may come in part in trying to address um, some of those those barriers and challenges around those temporary and um, to, there's a, we don't have a better word, but you know, lower skilled pathway programs, though you could argue that that's you know, lower skilled isn't really the right term to be using there, given the, the amount of skill that's required for a lot of agricultural positions. Um, and trying to address some of those broader challenges within those visa frameworks, um, as well as looking for ways to um, maybe strengthen them with regard to refugees, specifically through um, you know creating particular waivers or particular guidance around um, or, or pathways for refugees once they arrive in a country. But I think there's an a wider opportunity within the complementary path pathway space as we're talking about building programs that benefit refugees to also look at some of these. Um, issues in other visa programs that are um, not always supportive of uh, the, the working conditions and rights of, of those broader groups who are traveling on them um, and having sort of a wider conversation around how to strengthen those programs. Um, on the question of cherry picking, I think uh, David answered it very, very well. And I would just say that I think um, our view from the report was also that there may be potential um, within complementary pathways to um, begin to engage countries that have haven't always been involved in the resettlement conversation in um, in you know, broader conversations around humanitarian pathways through the, the complementary pathways space. And as David said, that won't always result in an on-ramp to resettlement later on, but it can help to familiarize um, wider constituencies and publics with refugees, um, the, the value and, and skills that they bring and begin to shift narratives around who refugees are. So it's, um, as David said, uh, it's worth bearing in mind that these you know, should be complementary to resettlement, but it's also a tool that can be used to begin to shift some of those narratives and engage a, broad, engage a broader constituency of countries and um, publics and other actors in conversations on humanitarian pathways. So I'll hand it back over to Hannah. Thank you very much, Susan. Um, we now have a question for uh, Rebecca Granata. Granato. Um, uh, Rebecca, there was a question uh, from Melissa in, in the Q&A uh, in terms of the, the education, but also employment pathways. Uh, in terms of, of eligibility, she was flagging that uh, the, the numbers of who may actually have access uh, to any type of education is, is really low. Um, and so that many are left out for the moment from these kinds of pathways. So. Uh, what she was interested to hear from you is whether in the longer term we can expect these pathways 
uh, to grow, to allow more people to, to benefit from it um, and, and, and meet some of those initial uh, requirements. Uh, and maybe we can also, if you have the time, uh, maybe if you can allude a little bit uh, further to, to maybe zoom in on, on a particular geographical context, for example, the US and what kind of opportunities there may be there in terms of growing um, uh, education pathways there in the future. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm sorry, I didn't see the question in the Q&A, but based on what you just asked, I'll answer it. Um, so in terms of preparation of refugees in countries of first asylum, it's true that the numbers are quite small. So what I think a lot of partners are attempting to do is to provide uh, preparatory and bridging programs that will open up access so that students can actually be prepared to move into the pathways as they open in places like Europe, in America, in Canada. Uh, it requires a great deal of preparation uh, because depending on where those students are going to be, if they're going to be moving to a third country and settling there permanently, uh, which is the hope with complementary pathways, um, recognition of prior learning can be a little bit more flexible. If they are going to be returning to a place like their country of origin or another location, not the country of first asylum in most cases, uh, they would need to have certain uh, exit exam scores. I mean, there's a lot of logistics involved. So these preparatory programs actually do provide uh, an important sort of avenue for these students to move into the pathways. I think that's the question that was being asked. Is that right, Hama? About the, 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 um, the number of students who actually are ready to move into these pathways. No, I think it's more about the, the possibilities. I mean, the, the, the volume of the places currently available to those. Sorry, that, that's, I think, the key. The concern ah. was, for the moment, it's both uh, the numbers are small, but also those who are actually eligible as a result also for these are small and is there opportunities to grow this over time. Is there opportunity to grow? Okay, that's the question. Sorry, I didn't, I misunderstood. So yes, I mean, that's exactly what task force members and other partners are working on is actually growing the possibility for additional pathways. I mean, Canada really leads the charge with the numbers of students that they're taking in. There's a real emphasis right now, as I mentioned in what I in my comments on expanding complementary pathway opportunities in the US and really creating another visa category so students can come in not as asylum seekers or on uh, refugee visas that are only earmarked for resettlement, but really so that they can come in as students, as higher education students with durable solutions attached. Uh, the goal is to expand the numbers there so that a number of complementary pathways will also meet those resettlement numbers. And I think this is the case in a lot of other places too. You know, places like Japan, they take very few students and they often have very uh, limited focal points on the countries where the students are originating from. But a lot of the advocacy work is on expanding those opportunities and ensuring that the countries of first asylum are not limited uh, the, the countries that they're be, the students are being received from, and also that the numbers of opportunities are, are widened. Thank you very much, Rebecca, for outlining this. And I think we've come to, to, to the end of our, our webinar. Um, we haven't been able to respond to all of your questions. I saw a question also uh, from somebody who had missed the beginning and was asking oh, what we're exactly focusing in, in the report. I just wanted to flag again that we were focusing on resettlement, on the education and, and labor pathways. 
um, but of course um, that we also so, um, as a team uh, NPI but also Refugee Hub has been looking in uh, pathways to protection for the last uh, five six years and really been working with government uh, governmental and non-governmental sorry um, what are the opportunities uh, here and that you can also have a look at our website for more information on this um, as mentioned earlier, the audio and video from today's webinar will be available on our website, migrationpolicy.org slash events. And uh, if any reporters are on this webinar, you can uh, contact us uh, at uh, via Michelle Mittelstadt. Um, and you can also sign up for um, further updates. And we really uh, yeah, welcome and, and support you to look at our web, uh, website to also have a look at the report that's now out in more details and to reach out to us and our panelists uh, for more information. Thank you very much uh, to our, all our panelists and a special thanks to Etienne for joining us today and giving his perspective and experience uh, on this particular theme. Thank you very much. Bye.